And what a testament, huh? To uh, just just the love of God poured out in our hearts when we see a family adopting like that. I'm just so... I'm, I'm inspired by what the Gibson family has done. And I hope you are too. And it, remind, it reminds me actually so much of what we're actually going to be looking at today in the Word of God. Um, it, it reminds me that, that in, in the church, in this thing that we call Christianity, in this, 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 this Christian faith that we all sub, subscribe to and adhere to and that we come together under this roof to say, yes, we're going to meet together as Christians There's one thing that's indelibly clear, and it is that we are all in this together. We are all in this together. And that's the title of my message today, as a matter of fact. We are in this together. I was was sitting uh, down below, I don't know if you caught it, but uh, normally I'm all by myself down there in the front pew during the start of a service. But over the last couple of months, uh, I've, I've had some visitors uh, come to the front pews. It started off uh, really from the Vasquez family. Uh, Josh Vas- Joshua Vasquez started coming down and sitting next to me. And I said, oh, hi, Josh. You know, I've never had anybody down here. And then a couple weeks later, Joey started meandering his way down and started sitting with me in the front pew. And today, the twins, Caleb and Taylor, came down. So I had four kids with me in the front pew this morning. And it was awesome. It was incredible. I thought, you know what? We're in this together. We're in this together. There is a measure of unity. There is a, there, there is a family sense that, that we are striving together in the faith, with the Lord, by His Spirit, to bring about the evangelization, the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. We're in this together. Folks, today in Romans, we are going to see Paul say this very, very clearly. He's going to make this statement indelibly clear on our hearts. And so I want you to open up your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 7 and continue on through verse 15 today. This is, uh, we're just getting started in the book of Romans. Now some of you were with us last week. And, uh, and you caught all the kind of the background and the history, and I'm just going to cover just a brief part of that today. But I encourage you, if you'd, if you'd like to get really a, a good foundation and you missed last week, go online and check it out so that you can have a foundation for the rest of this book. Because we're going to be in the book of Romans for probably the next year, at least, perhaps about 16 months. And uh, as I said uh, last week, this is a, this is a, this is a tremendously powerful and profound book. A tremendously powerful and profound book. And I strongly believe that the Lord has led us to this book for our church, for this time, right now. So, do you have your Bibles? Remember, I said I wanted to hear this last week. Can you, can you do this for me? Can everybody just kind of do this for me? Or grab a few Bible and do it for me, okay? I want to hear pages ruffling. Alright, Tom's ruffling his pages. This Book is a book where you got to be bringing your Bible, so you got to be bringing your pen, you got to be marking it up. Don't rely on that pew Bible in front of you. So bring your Bibles today. Open up to the Book of Romans, chapter one. Before we get started, just by way of brief review, Paul, the apostle, wrote Romans. He wrote it to the church in Rome, about the year A.D. 56, A.D. 57, and he wrote it to a church that had both Jew and Gentile believers that 
had a little bit of disharmony going on, not a lot. There were a few infightings, but by and large, the church was actually well known. The house churches there were well known for their faith. And Paul writes to them for three reasons. Number one, he writes to them to mediate any tensions. This is from last week, so it's not in your handouts there. To mediate any tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians and to spur on their unity. That's one of the reasons he wrote. Number two, to teach the Gospel of Jesus Christ to a highly influential church at the heart of the Roman Empire. Paul knew that what happened to the church in Rome would affect all the other churches. And so that's why he devoted so much ink to this book, the longest of his epistles. And third, and finally, to inform them of his coming visit en route to Spain in anticipation for mutual edification or or sharing together, fellowshipping together. So with that in mind, with those purposes in mind, let's take a look at the text beginning in verse 7. It says this in verse 7. Paul speaking here, and he's writing, he says, "...to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul identifies who he's writing to. Rome. The churches in Rome. And I, I failed to mention last week, but I, want to get, give us, I don't want to give us the impression that the church was like this church and it was a, a nice, large building on a number of acres in the heart of the city of Rome and, and uh, that there were many, many hundreds of people that would attend. No, that's probably not the case at all. In fact, in Rome, where Caesar ruled and where the Jews were already despised, imagine how the Romans felt toward a group of people whom many of the Jews despised. The Christians. So the Romans are thinking, who are these Christians? We don't even like the Jews. And now the Jews don't even like them. So man, they must be even worse. These Christians were persecuted. These Christians were mocked. And hence we hear so much about what took place in the Colosseum. Uh, with, with the persecution of Christians in our history books. But these churches were most likely house churches. Small communities, small fellowships, scattered throughout the city, made up of both Jew and Gentile believers. And uh, they, they, they were insignificant in number, but their faith was starting to get a reputation, a good reputation around the world. Paul calls them beloved of God. No longer was God's love particularly for Israel, particularly expressed to Israel, but now through Christ, all in Rome were said to be beloved of God. Called to be saints, or called saints, that is separated to God as holy. Just as God has separated Paul to a holy apostolic calling. Paul in verse 1 has mentioned that he's called to be an apostle. That's interesting too. We always think of, well, I, I feel the call to the ministry. We talk about that sometimes. Some people have the call to the ministry or a call to a certain vocation or office in the church. And Paul says that. I was called to be an apostle, Paul says in verse 1. But also, you all in the church in Rome, you've been called to be saints. You've been called to a holy calling. To be holy brethren. Verse 8. He says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Did you catch that? The whole world. Paul is thankful to God for the faith of the Roman Christians. Their faith is, is growing. 
It is maturing. It is becoming contagious. It is becoming influential. It has a glowing reputation throughout the Mediterranean world. And uh, Leon Morris commented on the significance of this statement. He said this, a great Bible commentator. He said, It must have meant much to the scattered little Christian communities that the church was established in the world's capital city. That is to say, of all the churches, in Christian churches, these small churches in Jerusalem and Antioch and throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout Asia Minor, boy, when they started to hear that there are churches in Rome, what excitement that must have given them. What, what enthusiasm, what motivation to keep on that must have given them when they heard that the church in Rome was growing. It was becoming influential. Their faith was being spoken of highly. Folks, the faith of the church in Rome was highly spoken of throughout the world. And I ask us, I ask us, Coast Bible Church, as we, as we consider the faith of the Roman church, what about our faith? What about our reputation? What do people say about the faith of Coast Bible Church? About the devotion to Christ coming out of Coast Bible Church? Is your faith spoken of in terms of what Paul says about the Roman church in verse 8? Is our faith spoken of in that way as a church? What are we known for? Are we known for uh, being uh, theologically superior? Are we known for being humble and meek? Are we known for being selfish and self-centered? Or are we known for being a servant in a mission-oriented church? Are we known for, well, they speak and act in one way, but they are quite different elsewhere. Or are we known for our integrity, our character, consistency? What is our church known for? What is our church known for? You know, I'm actually, I'm, 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 I'm quite pleased. Um, and I know the elders are as well, because I, I think that uh, I think that over the last number of years, um, our church's reputation is uh, is getting better. I think it's getting better. I think people in our community, when they when they hear of Coast Bible Church, they're starting to hear. Oh, I've been hearing some good things coming out of that church. I've been hearing about their faith in action efforts. I've been hearing about their service, their, their heart for missions that's growing. I've been hearing about a, a, a growing humility in the church, one that I haven't seen before. And I can attest to that. I, I, I've, uh, I've had people personally and, and on a number of occasions come to me and say, this church is, is acting meekly. And you know what? <laughs> Ironically, I'm proud of that. I am. I'm proud that I, I, I'm so grateful that our church is now being known for being humble and meek and gracious. That's what a church should be known for. That's what a church should be known for. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Our work is not done. Not even near done. We have many things that, that we need to shed off and, 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 and put aside perceptions that might be lingering about this church. Because, you know, perception is reality. And we need to do all we can to act and speak in the manner that is befitting of Jesus Christ. We want this church to be known as a church utterly and deeply committed.
to the Lord Jesus Christ and to act like Him. How about you? What is your faith known for? May our prayer be that others would look upon us as Paul looked upon the church in Rome. Take a look at verse 9. 9 and 10. For God is my witness, Paul says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Here we find one thing Paul is known for. Prayer. Intercessory prayer. It is likely the case that Paul could have probably counted on two hands how many of the Christians he really knew in Rome. He knew a few, and he mentioned some of them at the end of his epistle. He knew a number, perhaps a dozen. But Paul, not knowing many of the people in Rome, not knowing uh, all, of, all of those in those churches, he says, I've been praying for you. God is my witness. God knows. I've been praying for you. I've been thinking of you without ceasing, praying for you, making requests that, that I can come and that I could be with you. He prayed for people he hardly even knew. You know, we, we often get, uh, we often send out, not, not all the time, but probably on a, a weekly or every other week basis, you get a, you get a prayer request email in your inbox. Um, or maybe you get a phone call if you're on the phone prayer chain. And oftentimes, you know, you open up those emails and you, re- you read the person's name and you're like, I don't, but I don't even know them. I don't even know who they are. But you know what? We ask that you pray anyway. Because we are all in the family of God. We're in this together. And we believe in the power of prayer. I ask that, that you read those emails, those letters, those, have those phone calls when they come and pray even though you may not know that person personally. That's exactly what Paul's doing. He's saying, I recognize that a part of my service in the Gospel ministry is intercessory prayer. Paul considered that an integral part of his ministry, even to those he did not know. And, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows? One day, uh, could you imagine if you entered the gates of glory one day and you had people come up to you and shake your hand and say, you know, you don't know me. And actually, I didn't even know you, but I prayed for you when I got an email about your difficult trial. Could you imagine getting handshakes and hugs and and greeting those who say, you know what, you don't know me and I don't know you, but I remember your name. I prayed for you when you went through that one thing. What a reunion. What 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 an amazing thing that would be to see all those who have prayed for us and to greet all those whom we've prayed for that we've never met. Maybe we'll do that in glory one day. Paul says in verse 9, God knows that I've been praying for you all the time. He continues in verse 10 that, that one specific request that he's asked of God is that he be given a chance to visit Rome. Now, why, why does Paul want to see them? Look at, look at verse 11. Why does Paul want to see the, chur- the church in Rome? He says this in verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. 
Why does Paul want to see them? He says, I want to see you so that I can give you, impart to you, share with you some spiritual gift. Now, what does that mean? Um, we obviously have an instant reaction to the term spiritual gift, right? Uh, in, our, in our Christianese language, is Christianese a word? In our Christianese language, we look at the term spiritual gift and go, oh, I know what that means. That means uh, one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit uh, gives, to pe- gives to Christians that they might build up the church and, and they might uh, carry on the work of the ministry. That's what a spiritual gift is. Well, that's true to an extent. That's what Paul talks about when he talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13, and 14. But this one's probably a little bit different, actually. For one thing, it's in the singular, spiritual gift, not spiritual gifts. And Paul always refers to the gifts as a whole. For another thing, who's giving the spiritual gift in this case? Who? Paul's giving it. Does that align with your doctrine of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14? Do, do men, do apostles bestow gifts? Or does God bestow the gifts upon the Christian? It seems to me that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives these gifts. And so it seems that, that Paul is speaking of a slightly different uh, kind of uh, grace or gift that he wants to give to the church in Rome. The Scriptures are plain. God imparts spiritual gifts. So we can be sure that Paul is not telling them that he is coming to bestow upon them one of those. What it does mean, uh, whatever it does mean, it pertains to the establishing of the church. And notice that word impart. It means to share, to give. Uh, It primarily means sharing with one another in a spiritual manner for spiritual growth. Notice what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. A similar instance here. So affectionate, Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica and he's telling them how much he loves them. He says, so affectionately longing for you, we, that is Paul and his, his, uh, his fellow workers, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the Gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become so dear to us. That's helpful. That helps us get a context for what Paul might be saying in Romans. Much like he said in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, sharing with one another in a spiritual sense is what Paul is driving at in Romans 1. In fact, Paul explains the words of Romans 1.11 with the words in the next verse. Notice what he says. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. So Paul elaborates on what he means by imparting to them a spiritual gift. He says it pertains to encouraging. It pertains to having hope together with you by sharing in our mutual faith. What is the spiritual gift that Paul hopes to give to the church in Rome? It is a sense of mutual encouragement and hope that comes from putting Christians together under one roof. And notice, notice clearly, notice clearly, Paul doesn't just say, I'm going to come to Rome and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to come and I'm going to teach and I'm going to preach 
and I'm going to showcase all my talents and my leadership and wow, you know, I, uh, what, I've, what I've heard from the Lord and I'm going to just bless the church in Rome and you guys are going to go, wow, Paul, you're amazing. You're awesome. Is that what Paul says? No. No, actually, he, he immediately stopped short of that in verse 12. He, 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 cuts, he puts that to a full stop in verse 12. He says, wait a minute. And I want you to know, this isn't about just me coming to you. This is about us sharing together. We're in this together. Preacher, people, teacher, Christians, leader, believers. We're in this together, Paul says. We're in this together. St. Hodges writes this of uh, verse 12. He says, Paul is not so proud, however, as to imagine that only the Romans will benefit from mutual interaction with him. The Christian teacher who thinks that other believers can no longer bring him spiritual enhancement is a teacher in urgent need of additional wisdom. And I say a hearty amen to that. Um, There is never a day when I have an opportunity to learn from a teacher, even someone younger than me, There's never a day that I want to say in my heart, well, I I can't learn anything from them. Shame on me if I ever do that. We always learn together. We're always edified together. And someone as young as five years old can teach things to me. I see that in the kids that sit in the front row with me. Those, the Vasquez kids that come, come forward every Sunday now. Uh, It's awesome, Janine. I'm telling you, I love it. When they come and sit with me, I'm thinking to myself, They are encouraging me. I'm learning from them just by them sitting by me. They're giving me encouragement. They're giving me hope for the road ahead. We are in this together. Now, Paul's not sure exactly what God's going to do when they come together, him and Rome. He's not sure exactly what's going to happen. That's why, if go back to verse 11 for a minute, that's why it says some spiritual gift. He says there's going to be some measure of it. There's going to be some measure of edification. I don't know what God's going to do when you and I finally meet, but I do know that some spiritual gift, some spiritual benefit, some measure of encouragement is going to take place. And that's exactly what happens when you you put two Christians together. It's exactly what happens when, when, uh, when we send a team to Haiti and all they can say to us is, man, you're blessing us, you're blessing us. And we're thinking, no, you're blessing us. That's what happens when you put Christians together under one roof. Verse 13 says this, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Now, we got a peculiar phrase at the start of verse 13. You, you, if, those of you who have studied your words, studied the Bible, you are probably familiar with this phrase. You've seen Paul say it before. Sometimes he says it in, the, in terms of, now I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Or now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Paul uses this about seven or eight times in the New Testament. And every time he does, with one exception, every time he does this, every time he prefaces a verse with that phrase, Now, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant. He's introducing a new topic. Something new. Something especially important. Something that he really wants them, of all the things he's already said, he says, here's something I really want you to pay attention to. Pay attention to this, of all things. 
two topics of special interest to Paul. Number one, Paul wanted the church in Rome to know that he repeatedly tried to visit them, but was hindered from doing so. You know, it could have been, I'm speculating here, and we're, we, we, it's, it's within, the, the, the reason, within reasonable uh, it's within reasonable boundaries to, to suppose that Paul, never having gone to Rome, never having gone to the church in Rome, though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, that the church in Rome was starting to think, well, how come Paul hasn't come? He's gone everywhere else in the Mediterranean world, but he hasn't come here. Where is Paul? How come he hasn't? Does he not? Does he have a problem with us? Is, is there something keeping him from us? And Paul wants them to know very clearly, I repeatedly tried to come see you, but I've been hindered from doing so. How was he hindered? We don't know. Um, there's instances in the scriptures uh, that, uh, well, it was actually it was a. It, uh, there's instances in the scriptures where Satan hindered Paul, and where even the Lord said, "Nope, don't go there." So it could have been one or, one or more of those instances there. Um, but Paul says, look, I've been hindered from coming to you, but I've been trying to get there. I want you to know I've been trying to see you. And secondly, and this is, this is interesting, Paul wanted them to know that he desired to have some fruit from the church in Rome. Some fruit. Like apples and oranges? What was, uh, what, what was the fruit going on in Rome that Paul was like, I've got to come and get some apple pie? You know? No, that's not what's going on here. What is fruit? Now we're going to wait on that just a minute. We'll come to that in just a minute. So hang on tight. Why, why is this so important to Paul? Why is he talking about fruit? Just a minute. Let's go to verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says this, I am a debtor, Paul says. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the Gospel to you, who are in Rome also. Paul speaks of himself as being indebted. Indebted to Greeks. That is to say, the educated, cultured ones. And to barbarians. That is to say, the uneducated and uncultured ones. And he explains this in the next, verse, in the next phrase. He says, to the wise ones and to the unwise ones. But, one thing is clear, he's talking about Gentiles in particular here. Not talking about the Jews. Paul would never use the term barbarian to refer to the Jews. He would never do that. Some commentators suggest that. I believe that's absolutely false. Paul is speaking specifically of, non, uh, of Gentile persons, non-Jews. And he's saying, I am indebted. I am in the debt of all kinds of Gentile people. Cultured ones, educated ones, uncultured ones, uneducated ones, wise ones, unwise ones. Now, why is Paul indebted to them? Why is he indebted to them? In light of the debt, in light of this debt, however he's indebted to them, we're not sure, but in light of this debt, he says, because of the debt that I owe you, Gentiles, I am ready I am willing. It is my purpose to preach the Gospel. With all my might, as much as is in me, he says in verse 15, I am ready to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul, senses a, Paul has a sense of obligation to the Gentiles in particular. 
And so he is promising them that he is ready to preach the gospel to them. Now, we've got to answer the question, what is fruit? What is this debt? We're getting there. We're moving there. Hang tight. But first, I want to look at one more thing here. He says, look, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, wait a second. Suppose for a second we define the word gospel as it is traditionally defined in Christian circles. Okay? Let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, uh, bear with me here, let's, let's insert the words, instead of gospel, let's insert the, the common uh, words of the message of salvation by faith in Christ. Right? That's what most of us would, when we hear the word gospel, we would immediately think, oh, well, that's the message of salvation by faith in Christ. Let's read Romans 1 again with that insertion with that definition of the word gospel. Let's take a look. To all who are on Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, for I long to see you, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel, that is, the message of eternal salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, to you who are in Rome also. And I ask the question, are we really to suppose that in verse 15, Paul means to say that he's looking forward to evangelizing the church in Rome? Are we really to suppose that in verse 15, Paul means to say that he's looking forward to evangelizing the people of the church in Rome? after having described this church as beloved of God, called saints, described their faith as having tremendous influence around the world, having declared that he can't wait to be encouraged by their mutual faith, are we really to suppose that Paul means to say, I'm looking forward to evangelizing the church in Rome? That doesn't ring true, does it? Doug Moo, one of the preeminent New Testament scholars, one of the best there is, uh, probably has one of the best commentaries on Romans today. He writes this of verse 15. He says this, that Paul includes the Roman Christians among those to whom he wants to preach the Gospel is at first sight strange. Doug Moo gets it. He immediately catches on to what's going on in verse 15. He says, this is, this is odd that Paul would say it in these terminology. It, that Paul would use this terminology and say he wants to preach the gospel to a church that he's described with such glowing terminology. What then does Paul mean when he, wishes, when he says that he wishes to preach the gospel to Christians in Rome? Folks, that is the entire focus of my message in my next message in the book of Romans. The entire focus. And I want to leave us hanging for a minute. I want to leave us hanging for a minute because it's healthy. It's good for us to think, yeah, why, why would Paul say that? Do we, need to, do we need to reconsider our understanding of the term gospel? Is it always defined in one way or are there other uses of the term gospel? What does Paul mean by it? Friends, 
The word gospel is the key to the entire book of Romans. How Paul uses that word opens up the entire book. And I encourage you, bear with me. Next study we do in this book, we are exclusively going to focus on three, the next three verses that describe what Paul means by the word gospel. For now, have that sense of, what's going on here? And you know what? Search the Scriptures yourselves. Don't wait for my answer. By all means, do not wait for my answer on this. You are empowered by this Holy Spirit of God. You have eyes to see. You are enlightened. And I want you to look at the text and read the book and consider the word gospel and figure out, well, what does Paul mean there? What does Paul mean there? And we'll get to that in our next message. But now, to our final task, the word fruit. All right, take The word fruit here. Let's pull up that next uh, picture there, if you could, Joyce. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, okay, here we go. Now, uh, we're going to read verse 13 and 14, and then we'll, and then we'll get to this, this final topic of this morning. Paul says, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks, that word debtor there, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, so as much as in me I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Okay. Fruit. What does he mean? Fruit. Alright, bring up the bring up the next slide here. There's my wife in Bennett eating a nice apple. He was he was about one years old there. Isn't that sad? Come on, you guys gotta go ah with me here. Okay, thank you. I, he's three now and it's it's just it's pathetic. It's going by way too fast. Anyway, Bennett loves apples. And all in the month of September, my wife, being such a great mom, she has made it Apple Month. You know, because, you know, apples, I think, bloom in September, don't they? They do, right? Okay, we're going apple picking on Monday, so I hope they bloom in September. And, uh, but she's been teaching him all about apples. He's been learning about apple pie and apple this and apple that. So here we go. Paul's use of the word fruit in the New Testament. There are three ways he uses it. Number one, as characteristics and behavioral traits befitting a spirit-filled, spirit-led person. This is his most common use. You, you, this is the way you would probably most normally think of the word fruit. You'd say, yeah, it's good, it's good works. It's, it's good things that come when a person is led by the Spirit of God. They, they, they give out fruit. Paul uses it in a second way. He talks about it being a spiritual benefit, gain, or advantage. And I put the word spiritual in quotes there because it's not always a spiritual benefit. Sometimes it's just a general benefit that Paul's speaking of. But it can be, you know, very generically a spiritual benefit, gain, or advantage. And third, and, and, and less prominently, but still nevertheless in Paul's writings, a monetary donation, compensation, or return. Monetary donation, compensation, or return. Um, it is this last item I contend to you uh, that Paul, uh, which is how Paul uses, uh, which is how Paul defines the word fruit in Romans chapter one, and also at the end in Romans fifteen. You say what? Really? Let's take a look. Let's reread verses eleven to fifteen. I've got it on the left hand side here, just for the sake of some visual help here. I long to see, I've abbreviated it, but I've tried to keep it as much in context as I could here. For I long to see you, Paul says, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. 
I often plan to come to you, but was hindered, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other, uh, just as among the other uh, Gentiles. I'm a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Okay, we've seen that. We've read that. Okay, give me something I don't know. All right, Romans 15. Take a look. And so, this is toward the end of the book. And so, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Now, you should be seeing some parallels. If you haven't, uh, our colors will help. Ready? All right. All right. We're getting, we're getting a little Crayola this morning, okay? Is it crayons or crayons? That's what I want to know. How many say crayons? And how many say crayons? Ah, crayons. can't believe you people. That is not the right way to say that word. It is crayons. All right, anyway. In green, notice on the left-hand side, for I long to see you, Paul says at the start of the book, at the end of the book, in green, but now having a great desire of these many years to come to you. Same topic. In purple, I want to see you because I want to be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of you and me. And at the end of the book, for I hope to see you on my journey and be helped on my way there by you if first I may enjoy, be encouraged with your company. Red, I often planned to come to you but was hindered. On the other side, Romans 15, for this reason I, have, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. And in blue, 115. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also and blue on Romans 15. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. Wow, that's uncanny, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? Paul, you're repeating yourself. It's like you're copying your notes. Okay? Alright? So what? What's going on here? Alright, well, we've seen some parallels. Let's see. Let's continue on in chapter 15 and read the rest of it on the right-hand side. Let's continue on. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia, the churches in other Gentile regions, to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. Hmm, heard that word before. But if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Now, if you haven't noticed the parallels here, we're going to bring up the crayons again. Here we go. No, not, not a lot of color this time. But notice the words in verse 114. I am a debtor. Paul is a debtor to all these Gentiles. And in verse 27 of Romans 15, it pleased them indeed for they are their debtors. That is to say, the Gentiles are debtors to the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Both of them are debtors. Well, wait a minute here. Why are they different debtors? Well, on the one hand, uh, consider this. On the one hand, the Gentiles are indebted. On, 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 on this side, on Romans 15, the Gentiles are indebted to the Apostle Paul and to the Jewish Christians who have told them about Jesus the Messiah. They've told them. They're the ones who are explaining the Old Testament Scriptures to them. The Gentile churches are indebted to Paul and the Jewish Christians. They are their debtors. And on the other hand, on Romans 1 side, 
Paul, the apostles, and the Jewish Christians are indebted to the Gentiles who have graciously given to the increasingly persecuted and impoverished Jewish Christians. They've supported these apostolic mission trips throughout the Mediterranean world. Paul and the Jewish Christians are indebted to the Gentiles and for their financial support. Paul, a debtor. The Gentiles, debtors, but in different ways. They're indebted to each other. They're codependent on one another, working together in partnership with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gentiles have received the truth of God from the Jewish Christians. They've understood it. They've recognized it. And in response, Paul says in Romans 15, in response to their indebtedness to hearing the message of salvation, they have given of their material possessions to the Jews in in Jerusalem. And here's the kicker. Here's the final verse that I've withheld from you all this time. And it is verse 28 at the bottom on the right-hand side. It says this, Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them, the Jerusalem Jewish Christians, this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Well, what is fruit in Romans 15? Is it not a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem? That's what the fruit is. Paul makes it indelibly clear. He says, okay, Rome, I'm taking this gift. Rome, I'm taking this gift. Look what your other Gentile brothers and sisters from Macedonia and Achaia have done. They've given to the Jewish Christians and I'm taking this fruit and I'm sealing it, I'm giving it, I'm bestowing it upon the Jewish Christians who are persecuted at Jerusalem. You have owed them a debt They've given to you the truths of God and now you've given in response of your material wealth. They've given you spiritual wealth. You've given them your material wealth. And now notice on our left-hand side. I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also. Just as among the other Gentile churches. I am a debtor. Why is he a debtor? Because they're giving to him. I am a debtor to you. I am a debtor to the Greeks. I'm a debtor to the barbarians. All sides and shapes of the Gentile world. I am in your debt. You are giving to the work of the Lord, to the people of God. And in response, we are going to continue to preach the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We are in this together. Friends, this is an unusual um, interpretation of Romans 1, the fruit in Romans 1, verse 13. I will give you that freely here. Uh, vast majority of commentators would disagree with me. But I, 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 I cannot see it any other way than this. I, I've, I've read the arguments. I've looked at all sides. Most of them want to say that the fruit on this side, on Romans 1, is, is the fruit of, of, uh, of, of a fruitful life, of, of, of the health of the church, of, of expression of good works. But you know what? Paul changes topics in verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. He's changing topics. And in my humble opinion, as I'm being guided by the Lord, I pray, that fruit in Romans 1 is money. It's a donation. It's a contribution, just as it is in Romans chapter 15. What is the fruit in Romans 1, 13? 
It is the contribution. It is the contribution of the Roman church to the work of the ministry. Just as Paul received fruit from the Gentile churches, so Paul is requesting support from the church in Rome. And he's prepared to repay that debt. He's prepared to, to take the message of the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Friends, what, what, why did I spend so much time on this? Look, we are debtors. We are debtors to one another. I am indebted to those who have instructed me in the truths of God. I'm indebted to them. I should share of my material wealth with those who have trained me in spiritual things. As an expression of my gratitude, I should do that. We, Coast Bible Church, we are indebted to this church and to other churches and to other ministries and schools that have discipled us in the Christian faith. And it is right and proper, it is biblical in fact, for us to express our appreciation to these churches, to these ministries, to these schools by giving a portion of our material wealth that they might continue the work of the ministry. And I just want to close with just taking a quick look at some of the stats that we have on Christian giving nowadays. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy here actually. Uh, there was a study done. I've got all the citations for this, but I didn't put them up there for you. In 2001, 58% of U.S. church members gave little or nothing to their church. By little, or, uh, by little they meant like less than uh, $100, I think it was. 58% gave little or nothing to their church in 2001. In 2004, the average U.S. church member gave $691. In 2008, 9% of born-again Christians... Uh, gave, I should say, more than 10% of their income. 9%. And 10%, you know, it's customary uh, Jewish tithe there. We're no longer under the tithe. We're no longer under the law. But as a general pattern, a lot of Christians have accepted that as a, as a generally appropriate uh, manner of, uh, percentage of giving. And 9% are, are actively doing that. And here's what's really crazy. This is, kind of breaks my heart when you see this. But in 1933... U.S. churchgoers donated 3.3% of their income during the height of the Great Depression. And in 2004, U.S. churchgoers donated 2.5% of their income during the height of economic prosperity. I don't don't like preaching about money. You know, I really don't. And you've actually very rarely heard me talk about it. No preacher likes talking about money. But folks... Paul says, we're indebted. We're indebted to one another. Those who have trained us spiritually, those churches, those ministries, those schools, they should. It is right, it is proper for them to receive a portion of our material wealth as we've given them spiritual wealth. I'm very pleased to say that Coast Bible Church is faring well in the midst of Right now, economic you know, turmoil, a difficult time. Uh, the Barna Research Group estimated that churches over the last uh, three years have lost upwards of 15% of their revenue. In fact, I have a lot of pastor friends in the area, and nine out of ten of them, nine out of ten, easily, uh, are in that category. Anywhere from 10 to 15% they're down. Some as much as 20% down. Coast, praise God has seen a very mild increase each year since 2006. Small, steady, but you know what? When, when others are losing 15%, 5% a year, we have been growing little by little by little. Praise God for that. Amen? 
But my challenge to you is this. Don't be content with, with where we are financially. Be content when you know in your heart, in your family, that you are giving cheerfully to the Lord. That's when you ought to be content. We should never be looking at the back of the bulletin and say, well, the church is doing good, so I don't need to give. We should instead be thinking, you know what? What should my family do? How should we, what is a cheerful gift from us this year, this month, and with consistency? What is a cheerful gift that we can commit to? Folks, I think that we can all reconsider uh, our giving to the work of the Lord. And I think, that, uh, I think it's important. I remember actually speaking to one husband in the church, uh, just briefly. He, he volunteered to me that his family gives 10%. And he said with every paycheck, he immediately deducts 10% from it to give to the church. He said that for his family, giving less than 10% was just not an option. It was not an option. The first part of his paycheck, the first attention of his paycheck, went to the work of the Lord. And second came his lifestyle, his house, his car, his entertainment, his vacations. He says those things, they come second, and if there's not funds for it, so be it. The first part of my paycheck is going to the Lord. I... I think that's a great perspective. A great perspective. We purpose in our hearts the percentage that we're going to give to the Lord and we let those monies be the first monies out of our paycheck. And when there comes a day when the, when the bills of our lifestyle cause us to reconsider the percentage that we're giving to the work of the Lord, we say, wait a minute though, but this is always the first monies. And so instead of of, of dropping our percentage to the work of the Lord, we instead drop our lifestyle, which is how the Lord would have us do it. In all of this, friends, I want to remind us what we've learned today. We're in this together. We're in this together. God loves all of us. He's called all of us to be holy, called saints. He's called all of us to pray for one another. Even those we don't know, Paul said. He's, he desires us to meet together for joy and for encouragement. Christians coming together. He desires that we give to the people and to the work of the Lord. We're in this together. Let us, Coast Bible Church, move forward this fall in mutual encouragement and joy and edification of one another as we carry on the work of the ministry. Let's close with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for just the precious truths that we find in it. Lord, I am... I am so grateful for this study in Romans. I, I personally, Lord, You know that I am benefiting so much from these hours of study and these hours of pouring into Your Word. I pray, Lord, in the midst of a book that is difficult and hard to understand, that You would guide us, You would show us Your truths, that Your Spirit would lead the way. But most importantly, Lord, that we would recognize the truths and the topics and the themes that we're looking at here today, that we're in this together. We're in this thing called Christianity, in this thing called church together. Father, help us to work alongside one another for the spreading of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.